let's dive into God's Word. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. And we can begin. We're going to be in the Bible specifically physically today. We're not going to be up on the screen. So if you need one of those, grab one under the seat in front of you. We are in Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31, page 831 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. Part 76 of our Being Jesus series today, I entitled it Sorting Sheep. And I, I want to begin with, with the idea of reminding you of your identity in Christ. I know I do that a lot, but I think that one of the most critical things the church is supposed to do is remind you of who you are in Jesus, remind you of your value or your identity, to remind you what Jesus has done for you and who God is to you, to remind you what he's like, what you're like, so you can leave this place rock solid in who you are. I don't want the world messing with you, the devil lying to you, all that stuff. So I'm going to keep doing that periodically. And I would like to begin that way. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going I'm to need a show of hands. If you would consider yourself one of these terms, I don't care what term you use, saved, Christian, believer, surrendered, whatever it is that you have handed your life over to Jesus and you're trusting in him to rescue you, that he has forgiven you of your sins and cleansed you. If you would consider yourself in that category, raise your hand. All right. That's a lot of us. All right. So a huge amount of us, the vast majority of us would say that we are Christian. Therefore, let me tell you what that means. If you are a Christian, that means that right now, not later, right now, the relationship between you and God is right. The Bible says that he has given us his righteousness. That means that whatever yuck and garbage and sin and wickedness that was on your account, Jesus took that, nailed it to the cross, and gave you his perfect righteousness. That means that right now, when God looks at you, you are his pure, shining baby. It means that things are right. There is no animosity. God is not angry at you. There is no wrath for you. That your future is guaranteed and it is more beautiful than today. It means that you are never alone. It means that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And it means that God is always tracking on you. It means that he uses his angelic host to defend you to communicate with you. It means that God wants to communicate you to you freshly every day and that he is doing that whether you're tracking on it or not. It means that you're okay. It means that you are protected. It means that his ears are attentive to his children, the Bible says. Therefore, at any moment, at any place, you can call out knowing for certain that God is listening to you. For you to be a Christian means that you are forgiven and that you are filled full of grace. It means that you are extravagantly loved. It means that your identity is solid. It means that your value is extreme. It means that you are worth dying for and that Jesus would do it again. If all that is true, and I believe it is absolutely true because I believe the Bible to be true, and that is exactly what this book says about you, if all of that is true and you are filled with all that love and grace and you're in a good place, then how ought we to live for other people? Here's why. 
You don't have to defend your reputation. That's God's business. You don't have to scrap and claw and gain value because you already have value. You don't have to worry about your future because God's worried about your future for you. You don't have to do all these things in competition with other people for advancement because God has already given you a guaranteed inheritance. If you are in a great place, should you not then live for others? We are in a serving faith. Christianity means that we duplicate Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came for others. He died for others. His miracles were for others. Everything he did was for the people around him. Then why shouldn't we duplicate that lifestyle? We don't have to watch out for us. Our job is to watch out for others. Now, what it says in John thirteen thirty four, Jesus said, I give you this new commandment. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, by your love, all people will know that you're my disciples. What it does not say is you will be known that you are my disciples by your good intentions. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The world cannot read your mind. If you have great thoughts about them, that's sweet. That does not help them at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus loved in a tangible, practical way. His love was real and it was visible. And therefore, if we're to duplicate his life, we can't just be up in our heads thinking nice things and doing nothing. We live in a very weird era. And, and it especially depends on what stream you are in Christianity. Our stream, Bridgeway, we are challenged very much in the area of being up in our heads. Why? Because we're big Bible folks. Uh, we're all Bible nuts and we think that Bible is awesome and we think that it's God's word and that we want to know it backwards and forwards. And that is all fantastic and true. But somehow we have bought into this concept that we can just think about God all the time and not do anything. Sometimes we think that we got to have all the right answers to theology, but our neighbor knows, doesn't even know we're a Christian. So, so what we need to do is swing the pendulum back into balance that we live practically for Jesus, that we actually do something about it. Know this, how you live betrays what you truly believe, right? How you live betrays how you truly believe. Well, if that is the case and the fill in the blank is the case in front of you, a true heart is revealed in true action. A true heart is revealed in true action. Simply put, we got to start loving like Jesus loved and do something about the needs around us. There you go. That's where I'm headed. Now, obviously, we need to do it in the right manner or we're going to give the world the wrong opinion. If we spend our lives just trying to be nicer, they're going to beat us at that game. If we... Give them the impression that all of Christianity is just about being nice and doing nice things, then they'll have no need for Jesus. It's not only important that we do something, it's important why we do it and how we do it. Why we do it has to be based on our Father's agenda. How we do it has to be in the power of the Holy Spirit, or else the world can duplicate everything we're doing. Does that make sense? 
And you go, what does this have to do with sorting sheep? Well, we're about to read the last of the Olivet Discourse. I told you I broke it into six different messages. We're on the sixth of six, where Jesus is talking about the future. Talking about what was going to happen about the destruction of Jerusalem, what was going to happen in the millennial kingdom, what was going to happen at the end of the world. And as he's telling all this future stuff and the disciples are trying to get their head wrapped around it, he has been knocking off different things of be prepared, be ready, uh, think about it like this, you'll know this, you won't know this. Well, now he's going to start talking about how he's going to separate people who are going to be with him and who are not going to be with him. But the way that he sifts has everything to do with the way people live. That's not usually how we see it. So let's dive into God's word and see what he has to say to us today. We are picking it up. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, page 831. It begins like this. When the son of man, that is Jesus's favorite title for himself. It means Messiah. It's the title of the person given a great dominion in Daniel chapter seven. When the son of man comes in his glory, that is his beauty and his power. And when all the angels come with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, what throne is this? Why would you sit on a throne? To actively rule. We know that Jesus Christ is king. But when he sits on his throne, he's getting stuff done. So in this, when the Son of Man comes and sits on his throne to actively rule, then in front of him or before him, verse 32 says, he will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people. One from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. All right, little background. Why are we sorting sheep at all? Even practically, why is this an analogy? What, what is the metaphor separating sheep from goats? All right, I'm not a shepherd. I don't work with sheep. I don't work with goats. So I'm relying completely on research for this. Okay? But from what has been trained to me is that in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East at this time, the breeds that they were working with, with sheep and goats, looked an awful lot the same. You basically had hairy little mangy thing and then hairy little mangy thing. It was very difficult to figure out the difference between the two. And so an outsider would look and go, all I see is hairy little mangy thing. I don't really know what that is. Uh, it's probably a goat or a sheep or whatever. But to a shepherd, they would look at you like you're crazy. What are you talking about, man? That's a goat. That's a sheep. Man, I can separate them fast. It's like, goat, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, 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 sheep, goat, sheep, goat, right? They know how to do that. And their eyes, it looks really obvious to them, right? But we wouldn't know. We'd walk up and go, I have no idea what that thing is, right? So what is the point of this metaphor? Try this. Drive home today and tell me everyone in your neighborhood who's a Christian and who's not. You have no idea. And if you tried to do that, you'd be wrong more times than you're right why because from the outside they look very similar well here's the thing with sheep and goats they looked very similar but they're not the same they look very similar but they're not to be treated the same so for example one commentary said 
The way that you would work with sheep is that they can, because of their wool, they can retain their body heat. So in cold temperatures, they can be a little bit on their own, whereas goats have to huddle together for their warmth. So in other words, even though they look the same, they can't be treated the same. They're not the same. You need to know that. In the same way, just because everybody in the world looks the same, and on the outside you go, I don't know if that person's a Christian or not, Jesus knows. And he would go, that's mine, not mine, 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 not, not mine, right? He knows with his discerning eye. And so at some point, there's only two destinations. With God, not with God. The shepherd knows who's who. When he begins to divide out and sort people where are you going to go? That's the whole point of this passage. Now, the big question that comes up, and some of you don't, won't care too much about this big point because maybe it's too scholarly or it's a detail that you don't really care about. And this is your time to take a nap. Uh, for, for the folks that are into that, when is this? What time period is this in the future? Because... Is it the beginning to the millennial kingdom or is it the end of all time? Hmm. You go, what? What are you talking about? Do you know anything about the millennial kingdom? The thousand year reign of Christ on earth? Do you know anything about that? Because it is one of the least taught teachings of the Bible. I've taught it, but in my life growing up and all the pastors I've ever listened to, I've never heard it taught once. What is the thousand-year reign of Christ? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that the way the world's going to wrap up is going to go something like this. Things are going to get really bad. you got Antichrist guy, his buddy, the false prophet. They're going to screw up everything and be mean to a whole bunch of people, right? Well, at some point, Jesus is going to ride in and shut that down. Jesus comes in on a white horse, and they have what's called the Battle of Armageddon. Have you ever heard this phrase? The Battle of Armageddon, this big, massive war where the bad guys get shut down. The beast and false prophet, those guys, the Antichrist and his right-hand man, they get thrown away into the lake of fire. And Satan is bound for a thousand years in a pit. Have you heard this? A thousand years, Satan is taken out of the mix. So we have a big reset button that gets hit. Sin isn't gone. Bad guys are gone. You go, I thought that was the same thing. No, it's not. Think about the flood. Didn't the flood take out the bad guys? But yet, here we are all messed up again. So clearly it didn't knock out sin. Sin got on the boat, right? Sin got through the flood and ended up on the other side. But we had a big reset hit, right? Okay, well then, Jesus is going to come in and do a big reset hit. Bad guys are gone. Sin's still present. But now Jesus is on earth. He reigns from Jerusalem. The Bible says a bunch of creepy stuff about it. It says that all the people that died during that terrible time that were martyred for their faith, get back up. That's weird. I mean, there's some stuff that's practical in Christianity, and then there's stuff that's just weird. This is just weird. Okay, so if you're new to this, going, man, I don't know about that. Dude, I don't know about that either, okay? It's just weird. 
They get back up. This is when it says that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. The Jewish people will finally have the glory they were promised in the Old Testament. They will be led by their Messiah. There will be revival and redemption and glory for the Jewish people. And it says there will be thrones that reign with Jesus. Do you remember that's what the disciples wanted? James and John said, hey, can I sit on your right and can I sit on your left? Who are they trying? What, what was that for? It was the millennial kingdom. Most of the Old Testament prophecies that say the lion will lay down with the lamp. Remember that? That is actually the millennial kingdom. Because in that, those same passages, it says, and people will live a really long time, but they'll still die. Hold up. Nobody's dying in heaven. And we're not talking about heaven. And it will say that people are born. There ain't nobody born in heaven. So that's not heaven. And you go, wait, 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 hold on. This seems so needless. Why can't we just go to heaven? Why do we need another stopping point? Why do we need another, oh, let's do something else weird, right? I would suggest to you that it's entirely for the Jewish people. The fact that we're involved at all as Gentiles is because we got adopted into their family. But here's the deal. God promised the Jewish people that their Messiah would lead them to glory and they would rule over the nations. Are they going to rule over the nations in heaven? That doesn't sound right. What for all ever after Jews are better than non-Jews. That doesn't make sense. So he fulfills all of his promises by saying, guys, all right, let's do this. I promised you I would come and I would lead you. And yes, we're going to lead righteously from Jerusalem. And I'll teach you what I always wanted you to do with me and for me. Yes, there will still be nations of the world. People will still be born, all that stuff. However, if people are born during the millennium, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, they don't know any different. Let's say you're just born, and you're like, oh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. That's cool, whatever. It's normal to me. Well, what if you don't like that guy? Man, I hate the way that they run things. It always seems like, oh, they want it done this way, and I don't like that stuff. Do you understand sin still in the world? So how's it going to wrap up? The Bible says that after a thousand years, guess what? Satan is released for a short time. That's why he's not put away yet. He's released for a short time to do what? One last test. Who's with Jesus and who's not? Because you've got to clean it up again because new people are there. He goes through and he tries to rally all the rebellion against God again. Gets a whole team together. Hey, you guys don't like Jesus. You know what? I don't like Jesus either, he says. Rallies a whole team, and they go to attack Jerusalem. And what does the Bible say happens? Everybody remember this? And fire comes out from heaven, devours the entire team that's against God, and then all mankind is sent before the great white throne judgment of God, and we begin eternity. All right. So, what's this talking about? Is it talking about who gets in the millennial kingdom with the reign of Christ? Is that what judgment we're looking at, the sorting? Is this about sorting people and going, hey, you were really good to the Jewish people. I know you have my heart. Let's go ahead. You can come reign with me. You are not one of mine. Is that what it is? Probably. Or is this the end of all time where now we're closing everything up and everybody is brought before Jesus and he sorts out for all eternity? I have no idea. That's your problem. Okay, let's move on. 
I have no idea, honestly, you guys. I don't know. In some ways, you go, does it matter? There's going to be a judgment. What side are you on? I get that. But the implications of it being one or the other are pretty strong about who's getting selected and why. So let's read a little bit about that. Pick it up in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come. That's an invitation to be nearer to God. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a predetermined plan. How are they selected? Here you go. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Let's pause right there. Did you think that's how God was going to sort people based on how you lived? That's weird. Doesn't that seem to suggest that you're saved by what you do, by your works? Doesn't the Bible say very clearly that we are saved by the grace of God alone through faith, not by works, lest anyone think that they earned it, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Absolutely it does. So what is he talking about? What he just said is, I want you to come with me because you lived a certain type of lifestyle where you loved people practically and tangibly. You're like, man, that seems like contradictory. No, it's not. Why? James tells us this. The book of James in in the New Testament, it says this. He said, y'all keep telling me you have faith, but I'm not seeing anything in your life. Your actions betray what you truly believe. You keep saying you're into God. You keep saying that you're a loving Jesus. You keep saying all this. I'm not seeing any evidence whatsoever in how you live. I'm not seeing you help people. I'm not seeing you love on people. I'm seeing you think a bunch of stuff. But I'm not seeing any transformation on the outside. And if there's no fruit coming out in your life, is there even a root? There are certain things that should be natural. Let me give you an example. It's kind of a harsh example. If you truly believe in justice, let's say it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not listening to me right now. If you were raised with a sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of protecting the unprotected. If you were raised with any of that and you truly say you believe that, then child abuse should turn your stomach. You shouldn't have to think through it analyze it you should have a gut reaction that children being harmed is unacceptable it should bother you you should have a visceral response of saying that can't happen on my watch and you will want to defend them if you don't maybe you don't believe what you think you believe maybe all that talk is just talk My point is merely that there are some things that just come out naturally. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit, the outpouring of proof that the Holy Spirit is within you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That should come out naturally. If it's not, why not? What's jamming the system up, right? If we are filled with Jesus, 
we should naturally live like Jesus. If we have the Holy Spirit, we should naturally do the things the Holy Spirit does. That's how it's supposed to work. And if that's not working, we have some questions to ask. If we say that we're Christians but don't actively love on people that are truly in need, we have a problem. And so he said, you know what? Here's how I'm going to sort. I'm going to take a look at how you live because that will tell me what you truly believe. So how'd you live? Oh, look, you were loving on a bunch of people that you didn't even know. You didn't even know it was me. Watch this. Then the righteous will answer him, verse 37, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Their point was, Lord, I love the fact that I get to be with you. Yes, I love you, but I don't ever remember helping out a middle-aged, Middle Eastern guy with holes in his hands. I don't ever remember you walking around going, oh, there's Jesus naked. Whoa, right? I don't, I don't remember any of that. So the whole idea that I helped you personally, I don't remember that. And the king answered them, listen up, kids, this is deep. As you did it to, the, to one of the least or littlest of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Is that true? Of course it's true. Jesus just said it. How you treat my people is a direct relation to how you think of me. Here's the problem with it. We also have a very weird era where there's been so much churchy and religious stuff that people say the phrase, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. Most of those people are not here right now. They're listening to me on the radio. (laughs) They may grab a podcast or they may grab a video. Hi, guys. (laughs) Do you understand how that's not acceptable? Because as messed up as we are, we're the body of Christ. You don't get to just pick and say you want Jesus, but you don't love his people. You can't do that because that is him. Let me get into this a little bit deeper. Look at how he sorts the other side, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, which by the way, quick side note, this is total goat racism. I'm just telling you, goats are just as righteous as sheep, and I think that they're getting a bad reputation. Moving on. All right. Then he, will say, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, you judged and punished, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What? Wait, he's sending people to where? Hell? Lake of fire? Wait, what is that for? I'll tell you what it's not for. It's not for people. It says right there, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Who are they? God's original enemies. So how in the world are people getting there? The Bible says that it's God's will that none would perish, but all would have eternal life. If he built it for the devil and his angels, if he doesn't want anyone to go there, then why are hordes of people going there all the time? Because if you want to sign up and join the enemy's team, you're going to go where the enemy goes. It's not for you. It was never supposed to be for you. Why do you want to go there? Well, you know what? I I don't know, man, because I'm not into the devil. I'm not into God. I'm just kind of into me. Hold up. That ain't a team. Here's why. There are only two eternal destinations, with God, not with God. Hanging out with you is not one of the eternal destinations. 
well, you know what, I'm, not, I'm just picking my way. Your way is the devil's way. There you go. Why? Because the heart of all Satanism is selfishness. Uh-oh, that was crazy. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Verse 42. This is called How to Empty the Church. Okay. okay. <laughs> Verse 42. <laughs> uh, Verse 42. Uh, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. And they too being lost will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we didn't minister to you. They're thinking, man, if we would have known it was you and we could have earned some stuff, we would have done it. You were under the radar. We had no idea. And he will answer to them saying truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least the littlest of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life man that's intense why is it such a big deal on how you treat people about your relationship with god i think there's two reasons number one is a simple relational reason if you want to love on a person, love on their kids. Parents, if I said you and I are buddies and I hate your kids, are we still going to have a relationship? Uh, no. Why? Because they're an extension of you. They're part of you. As a matter of fact, you would much rather have them get a gift than you get a gift. You don't even care about the gift yourself. You just want your children taken care of. So God spends an awful lot of time going, man, you are really good about your tithing and giving and you always come to church, but you're a real jerk to my kids. So we have a block in our worship problem. You see what I'm saying? So the other reason that I think is even more powerful is that when Paul defined us as the body of Christ, that was not just a metaphor. The Bible says that when you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you are given the right to become sons and daughters of God. It says that something is awakened in you. You go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It says that you become partakers of the divine nature. And the verses that are used to describe this explain that you fuse together with Jesus and you become one with him as he and the Father are one. If that is the case, then we're not kind of the body of christ we are the body of christ and if you start damaging the body of christ you're damaging jesus do you remember when paul the apostle first got called by jesus and he said saul saul why do you persecute me and he said lord i don't even know who you are and he said you're messing with my kids that's messing with me now you and i have an issue don't harm my children. Does it matter how we treat other people? Yes. Does it matter whether or not we have a practical religion? Yes. The Bible says pure and faultless religion is this. If you keep playing the game that you're a religious good person, let me tell you what pure and faultless religion is. Take care of the orphans and widows. Stop telling me all the verses you know. And start helping someone. Now, Let's get into the practical matter of it. Why don't we help more? Why don't we tangibly help more? Because really, I don't think that we're even getting close to tapping our potential on how much we can help people. 
I'll speak for myself because I'm not here to beat you down. As a pastor, I look at our collective potential and I go, wow, look at what we could do, right? We're thousands strong. But let's just talk about me. Why don't I help people tangibly more? Is it because I'm not very loving? Well, actually, no, that's not the case. Not only am I absolutely into Jesus, but I am a people pleaser by personality. And I was born loving people anyway. So uh, everything about me loves on people. So why don't I practically help more? Let me just share my own struggle. Maybe you'll understand it. I think that the problem is not my heart. I think a lot of the problem is my information. Here's why. We live in a weird culture. We live in a very affluent society. And the affluence makes it look like those in need around us merely don't have what we have. They still have a lot. They just don't have what we have. We don't find that sufficient for us to sacrifice for them merely to get to where we are because it's only a matter of who has more. We have an information overload problem because of the amount of outlets and advertising and everything else. We're told about needs so much we shut down. Then we're not even sure that all the needs are legit because here's how we were raised. How many of you remember all the TV shows that had the African kids on TV and they were they were uh, they had distended stomachs because they were hungry and everything else. And they'd say, give to this. Then later on, you see a report that comes out and it says, do you realize that all these organizations, only five percent actually goes to the needy children and all the rest of it is just basically going to corporate bigwigs. When you keep getting burned like that, you keep taking steps back from need and you disconnect and you disconnect and you disconnect. Then all of a sudden you go, well, wait, wait, I understand that homeless is an issue. I understand that uh, poverty is a legitimate issue. So I'm going to go help this guy. And then later on, you see the news report. A guy standing there by the sign is making 35 grand every six months. And, he's, and you're like, wait, hold up. That dude's making more than I am. And you hear those reports and you automatically link them that it must be the guy that you helped. And now you take another step back. Because you keep thinking it's not legit. It's not legit. It's not legit. I don't think we have a heart problem. I think we have an information problem. And I think we have a disconnection problem. Because here's what I will say to you. And this is supposed to be kind of rough of a challenge. If you know of a legitimate need, however you define that, if you know a legitimate need, not a want, if you know a legitimate need and you have the resources to solve it and you turn your back, something's wrong with you. Why? Because Jesus dwells in you. How in the world is it natural to you to turn your back on someone that is hurting? That's messed up. Are we still doing it? Yeah. I know I am. That's not right. It's not okay. And here we have Jesus throwing out this big, huge separation. And he's going, you know what? My kids love on people practically. My kids live lives of sacrificial service to other people in a way that they can feel and understand. My kids change society. My kids alter community. My kids bring about justice. My kids distribute my wealth to the people that need it the most. My kids do stuff. 
They don't just think stuff. They don't just get all up in their heads and sit around together all in their fancy houses and fancy cars and talk about how many angels you can fit on the head of a pin. That ain't Christianity. That's religion. And that's not what we do. So he said, kids, if there's anything you can take away from this, I want to ask you, are you with me? Are you not with me? And if you're with me, how come you're not doing what I do? Shouldn't we have a responsibility to connect in with true need and actually set boundaries when stuff's not legit? You understand what I mean? Some of us think that to be Christian means to be a doormat. That is not correct. To be a Christian is to be wise. To be a Christian is to be giving where it needs to be given. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know why things don't soak from our head to our heart. I don't, I don't know that. I don't, I don't know why, Lord, that there's so many things that I know that are true and I don't live them very well. I guess I don't believe them as much as I think I believe them. But Lord, I speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters here in this room and we say, God, we acknowledge, yes, Lord, we are not living it the way we ought to live it. But Lord, we need clarity. So, Lord, the way I look out and I see your family here, I see generous hearts. I see loving people. I see soft-hearted people. I see people that are better, Lord, than I'll ever be in the nice category. So God, whatever it is that's jamming up the system, wherever the enemy has lied to us, wherever the world has distorted our perception, would you clean us up? That we might become a mobilized army to advance the kingdom in our community, that we would impact, that we would do the right things, that we would help people in a practical way. That Jesus, when you left this earth, Israel knew you lived there. God, when we leave, will anyone even see us missing from our neighborhoods? So God, we ask that you would change us, make us more aware, make us more connected, make us stronger to set boundaries, make us more receptive, God, to what you're doing. Wherever you say, that's my agenda, may we say, yes, sir, we will walk with you right now. Let's go. Lord, change our hearts that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.